All right, good evening, everybody. We are starting an interesting uh, topic, um, which I think is interesting. And uh, the title of it is uh, Thinking of Visiting Germany, Spain, or Egypt, Think Again. And that is based on a verse that comes out of this week's Pasha. It actually comes at three separate times in the Torah. I'll quote it uh, here. If you've got it on our sheets below, you will be able to follow. So the first one we'll do in this week's Pasha, which is over here, it says... And it's regarding the appointment of a king. So it says one of the things that a king is uh, prohibited is not to have too many wives because they will take his heart astray. And the second thing is lo yaber lo susim. He shouldn't have too many horses. And so that he should not set, bring the people back, to, return the people to Egypt, in order to acquire more horses. And Hashem said to you, you should not go back that way again. So over there, it's seemingly like don't have too many horses. Why don't have any horses? Because they, to get horses, horses apparently were very popular in Egypt. In fact, this is something we see throughout. Say for uh, Shmot, the book of Exodus, the fact that Pharaoh and his horses, which is seemingly the first time we see horses up until then, it's camels and, and, and donkeys. We don't see any horses. Fire was the first time we see horses. So to acquire horses, you go to Egypt. And we're not allowed to go back that way to Egypt. Now, we have already seen this beforehand. If you look earlier in the Torah, just before the splitting of the sea, the pastor comes and says, the first one, the source on the sheet, it says, Don't get distressed. Don't be scared. I will show you the salvation of Hashem. That Hashem is going to do for you today. You will not see them ever again. Now, what we're going to see shortly in the commentaries is that's not just the same. Like, don't worry. From now on, you will never see the Egypt again. But it's understood from the commentators from here. Not only will you not, but you may not see them again. So I brought this in a, 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 the Gemara, the Jerusalem Talmud underneath here, the, the second source here. So Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said, This is one of three places in the Torah that it says that we may not return to Egypt. So the first one is just before the splitting of the, the, splitting of the sea where it says, You will never see these people again. I not only won't you, but you're not allowed to. The second one in our parish it says, You may not go back again to acquire horses. The third one will come in Pasha Kitavo in three weeks time where it says, and it's one of the punishments, and Hashem will send you back to Egypt in Oniot, in, uh, galleys, but in ships. You were, this part of the punishments that happened in Kitavo, that when things go badly for us, Hashem will send us back in ships. I will send you back on the way where I told you that you should never go back there again. You should never see it again. You'll be sold to your enemies. You'll be sold as male and female slaves, but there will, no one will buy you. So three separate times in the Torah, it comes and says, you should not go to Egypt. Oh, sorry, I, I sent you back to Egypt, the place that I said you should never see it again. You should never see them again. One or another, you have three separate Psukim uh, in the Torah that the Gomorrah understands that these are three separate times the Torah is warning us never to go back to Egypt. 
Now, I can't see all your faces here, but if you were to think of such a thing, you'd say, well, three, uh, you're not allowed to go back to Egypt. Hold on a second here. It, what is the reality in uh, Judaism? Can we not go down to Egypt? So, let me quote you two interesting sources. First one is a Gemara. Talmud uh, comes in Masechet Shabbat, which tells us of the enormous synagogue that was in Alexandria. This says it is taught in a brighter that Rebbe said, Whoever did not see the great synagogue of Alexandria of Egypt never saw the glory of Israel. They said the structure was as large as a basilica with a colonnade, within a colonnade. It was just it was a building upon a building. At times there were 600,000 men and another 600,000 men in it. Twice the number of those who left Egypt. So you have 1.2 million people could be in it. Now I think it's fair to assume that this is quite hyperbolic rather than literal. But that being said, is it's telling you there was this enormous shul in, in, uh, in Alexandria. And in it there were 71 golden chairs corresponding to 71 members of the Great Sanhedrin, each of which consisted no less than 21,000 talents of gold. I'm just getting more pencil here so we can follow. Um, each was a wooden platform at the center. Uh, the sexton, the shamash of the synagogue, was standing on it and with scarves in hand. The, the literal translation is flags. And because the synagogue was so large, the people couldn't hear the communal prayer. So no one could hear the chazan. It was such an enormous shul that people couldn't hear the chazan that when he got to the conclusion of the blessing, the, the, the shamash, the gaba, would have to just wave the flags. So everyone would know when to answer amen. Now, I have been to a shul that, not quite like that, but there's, um, in Jerusalem, near the central bus station, is a place called Kiryat Bells. And that's the headquarters of the Bells Hasidim. And there... Um, I don't know what you call it, their headquarters, is this enormous structure that looks like a temple. It's, it's quite a phenomenal place. And, and they've got a shul. It's not a yeshiva, it's a shul. And you go in there and they've got this this 70 meter, I think it's 70 meter high iron kodesh. It's enormous. Now it can't be 70 meters, 30 meters. This enormous wooden iron kodesh. And it is enormous so much so that when the chazan, get, when the chazan wants to sing, they actually have to, t- they've got this big leather pillow and a wooden spoon and they whack the pillow to make this huge club to tell everyone to keep quiet. Because otherwise you can't hear the chazan. There's so many people in there. So similar in Alexandria, that's what I thought about like Alexandria when I went there, is Alexandria was this enormous shul that they had to wave flags to tell people uh, to keep quiet so they could answer our main. But it tells you if nothing else, there were, at least according to this Gomorrah, there were 1.2 million men at least living in Alexandria. Now, I doubt there were ever this amount of Jews living in Alexandria. But nevertheless, there was a very prominent shul in Alexandria. So if the Torah has told us in three separate times, one may not go to Egypt, one may not see Egypt, one may go back to Egypt, whatever the case may be, how on earth were there people living in Alexandria? Very hard to understand. And the second point, which might be even more notable to you, is we have a very famous rabbi who lived in Egypt. So, uh, see if... If uh, anyone can guess where who that famous rabbi was, it was none other than the Rambam. So the Rambam lived in Egypt. So the Rambam so wasn't born in Egypt. He was born in Cordovera, Spain. At a very young age, he had to flee. He went through Eretz Israel down to Egypt. They were being pursued by the Omahads, which was a fanatical Muslim group at the, site, at the time. And he went to live in Egypt to where he became the uh, medical, medical officer to the Sultan of Egypt. Now, there's a book called The Kaft of a Farach, which is a, a, a compilation of Jewish minhagim. And I'm sorry, the books, uh, not all the books I could find in English, uh, with English translations, but I will happily translate. And he says as follows. 
So he, he, what he's talking about is there are certain mitzvot in the Torah that seem to be quite explicit, but people, a lot of people just don't keep them. And he's trying to, and he gives a whole bunch of examples that it's very explicit that we're not allowed to do something, but people, people do it anyway, or the other way, people that should be, shouldn't be doing something, and they're doing it. So he says, And I say, today, as a result of our great sins, then Rova Am Saminale. And there are a number of very um, important prohibitions and famous prohibitions that the majority of the community or many in the community do not take seriously. Like those who live in the land of Egypt, they transgress three prohibitions. So he's saying three different verses in the Torah as three prohibitions. It's not clear that that is three prohibitions, but three verses in the Torah. I heard myself, says the craft of a fair, I heard myself from a descendant of the Rambam. That every time he sent a letter out of the land, he would sign it. That he would sign, this is signed. Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, who transgresses three mitzvahs every single day by living in Egypt. So, uh, so it's okay, it's clear as day. So, how on earth could we have three, um, you know, three prohibitions explicit in the Torah? You cannot go back to Egypt, you cannot live in Egypt, you cannot see Egypt again, and yet you have. A huge community of, of uh, Alexandria that lived in Egypt. And then you also have um, no, notable uh, Chachamim like the Rambam. Um, the previous chief rabbi of Israel was um, one of the previous chief rabbis of Israel, Vadi Yosef, was, uh, lived in Egypt. He grew up in Cairo. So there's, there's always been you know, very established communities up until 1948, established Jewish communities in, in Egypt. So how on earth could we be there? So the Kaft of Aferach brings one explanation. And he says, uh, And I, you know, I want you to offer like half a consolation. Maybe the Rambam didn't have a choice. You know, when you're, when you're the medical advisor to the Sultan, you don't have the luxury of saying, listen, I'm making Aliyah. So he says, He was the, he was the doctor for the king of Egypt. So we see that at other places. Now that helps out the Rambam. So maybe the Rambam was there, you know, against his will. Didn't go there. To the best of my knowledge, he wasn't a doctor when he got there. But um, that being said, maybe that's a good excuse for the Rambam. Um, but he quotes, an, he quotes another source. So he wants to suggest perhaps, perhaps the issue was that it wasn't so much when it says you go back. So if we go to our original source and it says, and I told you, you should not go back that way again. So what does that mean? You should not go back that way again. Is, does that sound to you like it says, don't live in Egypt? It doesn't. It just says you should not go back that way. Lots of similar shuv, but derechaze. Should not go this way. So the prohibition, maybe it's the, you know, specifically you left Egypt one way, don't turn around and go back Egypt the other way. Um, another way, by the route which I told you should not see again, you should not go bederich. Again, everything is bederich. The earlier one doesn't say derich. It says um, the Egyptians 
Re'itim, it Mitzrayim ayom lo tzitzivim od. You will not see the Egyptians again. So, so he wants to suggest, so the Kaftar Paferach wants to suggest, maybe the prohibition isn't being in Egypt as much as it's going from Egypt. Now, we'll see a few others that want to make suggestions. Um, let me bring you back to the bottom here. So this is Rabbeinu Bechaye on our parsha. Rabbeinu Bechaye was a, um, a very notable commentary. There, there are two, there's Rabbeinu Bechaye and Rabbeinu Bachia. Rabbeinu Bachia wrote a book called the Chovot Levavot, which I have here somewhere, which are the duties of a heart. And Rabbeinu Bechaye is uh, a commentary on the Chumash. And he says as follows, And the Lord has said to you, you should not return on that way again. And it says, This commandment was valid only during the period when it was promulgated. Meaning, it's not a Torah prohibition forever. So it, it can't be counted as one of the 613 mitzvot. Why? Because it was for that period of time. When did we not want them to go to Egypt? We don't want them to go to Egypt at, at that period of time. When we just left. You know, we left Egypt. How many times are we going through the Midbar? Do we have B'nai Shah saying, Oh, let's go. It was better that we lived in Egypt. Maybe we should turn around and go back to Egypt. At the beginning of Bashalach, when we talk about leaving Egypt, it says Hashem took us, didn't take us through the way of the Philistines because perhaps he will see war and want to return to Egypt. So Hashem didn't want us to go back to Egypt specifically at that time. But it's not like a forever you should never go back to Egypt. It's a period of time you shouldn't go back to Egypt. It was intended to ensure that the Israelites traveling to Egypt would not learn to copy the abominations and practices in that country. As the Torah spells out in detail. Now, I just want to hold it there for a second because we're going to come back to this. But what, what he's trying to say over there is that it was a, it was for a period of time the prohibition. It wasn't a real prohibition forever. Now, where that is going to become a practical difference is is it counted as what one of the six hundred thirteen mitzvot? Because the six hundred thirteen mitzvot, at least according to the Rambam. One of the prerequisites of it is that it has to be a mitzvah that is always applicable. So not all the mitzvahs in the Torah were universally applicable. So for example, um, the manna, you had to go and pick it up every day and you could only take a certain amount. And on Friday, you had to take a double portion because none would fall on Saturday. Now, that was a mitzvah. But it's not a mitzvah that we have to fulfill today because... We don't eat manna anymore. So there's no mitzvah for us anymore. So that is a time bound. Well, like it, it, lim- it was for a very limited period of time. So it doesn't ca- count as one of the 613 mitzvot. Now the other mitzvot which are counted. So for example, offering certain sacrifices. Often the Korban Pesach. The Pesach offering. So we say, ah, oh, but there's no Korban Pesach nowadays. It says, yeah, there's no, that's a technical reason. There's still an obligation to bring a Korban Pesach. But technically we can't. Technically, there's no temple, but there's still the mitzvah exists. We just can't fulfill it. The mitzvahs of the land of Israel are still there, but if you don't live in the land of Israel, you can't fulfill them. It's not that the mitzvahs don't exist. So taking tithes, so if you don't plant a tree, so if you don't have a house, you don't have a mezuzah. It's not that there's no mitzvah of mezuzah. You just don't have a house, etc., etc. So similarly over here. So how does the Rambam count it? So the Rambam counts it as one of the 613 mitzvot. So if the Rambam counts it, it means it's still applicable today. So... If we are to believe the Kaft of a Ferach, and should know that majority of the commentaries disagree and say that the Rambam never wrote that, and the Rambam felt that he was not transgressing it, so he's going to come and they're going to explain it. We should uh, see this shortly, that um, when it says you're not allowed to live in Egypt, it's going to be, doesn't mean that you should not live in Egypt per se, but rather is very 
uh, circumscribed behind the uh, prohibition. Now, the question I want to get to, which is, what is the real problem? When it says don't go back to Egypt, is it the problem Egypt, meaning the, the, the land of Egypt, you should not go to the land of Egypt, the land is prohibited to go to. And we do find places where there is land that is prohibited to set for, especially like, for example, a Kohen. So Kohen, he can't go to cemeteries, he can't go places where there are dead bodies. That is a prohibition. But you remove the dead bodies, that's permissible. So is it the place per se that's prohibited? Um, the Kodesh Kodoshim. if you're not a Kohen, you're not allowed to go into the temple. So that whole place is off limits. You can't go there. But Or is the problem not the place, but the people? That the problem we're going is that you don't want you to go to be influenced by the Egyptians. That was the real problem. But the land itself was never the problem. It was the Egyptians. Now, however you look at this, is going to have a, what to call a very big nafkamin, a big difference between whether the prohibition is the land or the people. Being that if the prohibition is on the land, so then the prohibition should still exist today. But if the prohibition is on the people, then it comes the question, are the Egyptians we have today the Egyptians that enslaved us that many years ago? Either genetically or behaviorally, which you know, we'll, we'll come to discuss. So let's go in the first, the first approach, which is I suppose the second approach, is the prohibition is not the land, but rather the people. So this is brought down by a book called the Sefer Mitzvot Gudalot, the Rambam. When we talk about the Sefer Mitzvot, the book of mitzvahs, the 613 mitzvahs, you should know that not everyone agreed what these 613 mitzvot are. There are a number of different opinions. And the Rambam is the most notable of the counts. But not everybody agrees with the Rambam. The Ramban disagrees with him. And the Smug, the Sefer Mitzvot Gudalot, acronym Smug, is another one that disagrees. So he says as follows. Siva Kadesh Baruch Shalom Yeshuvu Yisrael and Mitzrayim. So it says that the Hashem commanded us to never go back to Egypt. And he quotes the verse from our Pasuk that you should not go to this, go back on this way. And the Gemara comes and says, um, says, It says, You can't go back to live but you can definitely go back on business. Well, you want to conquer Egypt. So that's fine. It's just to go and live in Egypt. It's a problem. Now, but to go temporarily, it would seem, to do business there would not be a problem. So it's not a problem to go there on holiday or to go on business. So maybe holiday is a different story. But it's, not a, it's a problem to live there. But and there's a big wonder. How many, so many communities that live there? And even the Rambam went to go live there. So he explains, Maybe the reason they could. So he says, Well, before the destruction of the first temple, so a little bit of Tanakhic history. In the time immediately after the death of King Solomon, there was a division in the kingdom between what are called the, the tribes of Israel, which were the ten tribes to the north, and the tribe of Yehuda. And throughout from the, from the book of Malachim all the way to the end of the Tanakh, you're going to have two kings that are reigning in Israel at any one time. One's going to be the king of Israel, another's going to be the king of Yehuda. The king of Israel had their headquarters in a place called, the Shom, called Shomron, or Sebastia, 
We call the Shomron, the whole area, the West Bank is called the Shomron, Yehuda and Shomron. But Shomron was a city and it was the capital of the tribes of Israel. And the tribes of Judah had Jerusalem as their capital. The tribes of Judah always had a descendant of King David as their king. And the tribes of, uh, and the tribes of Israel had changing kingdoms and kings that came from different tribes. The Assyrian leader, the Assyrian king, Sancheiruv, came and he conquered the, 11, the 10 tribes and sent them into exile. Those are the lost 10 tribes. So the king Sancheiruv came and, destroyed, and, and mixed them up. Now why they lost is because when he sent them, the way that he would uh, dislocate people from their lands is to mix them up and not allow an entire community to go to a certain place, but would consistently mix them up so that they would not be able to rebel because they would be mixed up and every nation got mixed with every other nation. Now, Sancheiruv did not only do this to the ten tribes, but he did it to multiple nations. And that's what the, the Sefer Mitzvot is saying over here, that Sancheiruv came with Bibel kol haolam kolo. He, every area that he conquered, he mixed up. And you know who else he conquered? Egypt. And he quotes the source that So if Egypt was conquered, the people in Egypt are not the Egyptians. So he says, So it says that this, so, so the Egyptians are no longer Egyptians. Okay? He says, Not everyone agrees with us. Let me just carry on here. Um. Yeah, what Okay, so he wants to say the problem, since the problem is the Egyptians, these are the Egyptians that are there are not the original Egyptians, and therefore that is why this is no longer prohibited. Now, that is true um, on every level. Now, if, if you go look at a lot of people that think, you know, what did Moshe Rabbeinu look like? People say, oh, you know, the average person says, oh, Moshe probably looked, you know, he came from the Middle East, he probably looked like an Arab. Now, the reality is, is that the, the Arab race did not exist throughout the Middle East uh, three and a half, four thousand years ago. It spread because Arabs, not everyone in the Middle East is an Arab. And if you go back then, not everybody there was an Arab either. Egyptians weren't Arabs. Now, if you go look at hieroglyphics and you go look at what ancient Egyptians look like, they did not look like Arabs. And neither, until this day, Iranians, the Persians, they're not Arabs. Turks are not Arabs. Arabs, you know, there's a large part that's spread throughout there. But the Egyptians today are Arabs. So it's a very different, the people that are there today are not the people that are there then. And this is true with the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, and the ancient Israelites as well. So what do ancient Israelites look like? Whatever they look like, they definitely didn't look like me. They didn't look like Ashkenazim. They probably didn't look like Sephardim either. Whatever that race looked like is probably being mixed up. But what it comes to say is the Egyptians are not there anymore, so therefore the prohibition doesn't exist. So like we saw earlier, this was a time-bound prohibition. And so going back to Egypt would not be an issue and that's how the Rambam could live there and that's how these all these communities live there because the communities that they lived there they weren't Egyptians anymore they were just people living in that place that used to be known as Egypt and the prohibition had to do with the people not the place so that's one opinion another opinion comes says no the problem is the place not the people so this is the Sefer Yireim it's also a, it's also a book of mitzvot and he says as well 
Yisrael and Mibimitzrayim. The command is that Bnei Yisrael should not go to Egypt. Tehchivin quotes the pasuk from our parsha. Rashi ma'malachem lo tzim l'shuv b'derech hazeh od. Avar gav damir ma bebrachot. Tira shach shetir Yehuda. Germany. So it says. Um, it says even though Egyptian converts and the the issues the Egyptians are not a problem. There is an issue with regards to Egyptians. How you know an Egyptian convert is not allowed to marry into Israel until a few generations later. It says these nowadays there's no such things as Egyptians because Sanchayiv Kabi mixes everyone up. He agrees with that, but nevertheless, it's still a problem. So, um, uh, and even though the Egyptians there are not the Egyptians that we spoke about, that is no good enough reason to allow us to return. The problem is not the people, it's to go down to the place of Egypt. It's got nothing to do with the Egyptians, it's got to do with Egypt. Okay. So, God, uh, so then if that's the case, how on earth could these people live there? So how could the Rambam live there? How could all these communities go there? If the problem was the Egyptians, how did they live there? So he wants to quote, and let's see if he gets here. So, um, uh, so I, I'm perplexed on how they, what, on what they've relied to live there. I'd like to suggest The problem is to go from Israel to Egypt because it's Mamish reversing the process. The process was we leave from Egypt to Israel. We should not go from Israel back to Egypt. But you want to go from uh, Spain to Egypt? That's fine. You want to go from uh, Iran, Iraq to Egypt? That's fine. But to go from Israel to Egypt, that would be a prohibition. So we see from, from Daniel, from the book of Daniel, that Daniel went from Babylon all the way, or he went from Persia at the time, went from Persia to Alexandria. And he went there, so how could he do that? So it must be that the problem was only going that particular way. Alright. Okay, so, so that's the way they want to say it. So the... So the Uraim comes and says that the prohibition is going to Egypt, but it's it's how you get to Egypt. So if you go from Israel, that's the prohibition. Um, so we've seen a number of different explanations. Either we could say it was a person-related thing, but the people are no longer the same people, or we could say it's a place-related thing, and the prohibition is only to live there, but to to pass through there, to visit there, to conquer there, to do to business there is okay, just not to live there. Or we say that the, the way you get there is just a different way. You know, as long as you don't go the way that we came, which is the most technical of the explanations and the hardest rationally to understand, that Hashem um, doesn't have a problem with us living in Egypt. He just has a problem of specifically going on that highway. If we go to take a different highway, Hashem is not a problem. So that's, it's, it's, it's tough to understand that. Okay. So let's just carry on with the Rabban Bechaya. I didn't finish it off earlier. So he says that this was only valid during that period of time. Um, so the concern was that we should not learn to copy the abominations of practice in that country. This does not mean there's a permanent per- prohibition for Jews to reside in Egypt. Had the Torah intended these words to permanent prohibition, it would be inconceivable that so many scholars, pious individuals made their home in Egypt after the destruction of the temple. 
Even if individual Jews had ignored this prohibition and settled in Egypt, the sages would have spoken out against this and would have records at their protests. So the fact that no one said anything against the Rambam and all the Jewish communities lived there meant that it seemingly everybody was comfortable with the fact that they were living there. The only people who were forbidden to dwell in Egypt were Jews who left the land of Israel to do so. Now, I don't know what that means, to leave the land of Israel, because, I mean, you were living in Israel, so you're allowed to live in Egypt, you just can't make Yeridah, you can't make a move from Israel to Egypt. I mean, the Rambam went through Israel, so how did he get around it? So others say that the prohibition applies even nowadays, but only one who has settled the land of Israel. Okay? So if you have settled in the land of Israel, so for a modern-day Jew who's living in Israel to go to, to Israel, that to Egypt, that would be the prohibition. Okay. It's very hard to understand. Um, practically speaking, it would appear that you want to go visit Egypt. So seemingly, nowadays, you want to go see the pyramids. Seemingly, this, uh, according to some, it would say, yeah, it's still a problem because Egypt, you know, especially if you're going on a holiday to Israel and then you're going to go down through the Sinai and you're going to take a day trip to go see the, the pyramids. So that's exactly, that's the way that Hashem, you know, Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim and you're going to go back there. And that would be a problem. But to fly there, oh, you can fly to Egypt and go see the pyramids seemingly would be okay by the technical thing. But um, according to the, the opinions that say that it's the people, so that would be different. Now, why did I say you want to go visit Germany and Spain? So the question that I want to raise, and i stop sharing for now, is how, how do we view the modern-day Egypts? And modern-day meaning places throughout Jewish history that have treated the Jews in a very, very harsh way. Does the Egypt prohibition become a paradigm on which we can, we can base all other prohibitions? Meaning, if Hashem said, don't go back to Egypt, why don't go back to Egypt? Either one, because the place has terrible memories or the people are terribly corrupt. So we said it's one of those two things. And the place is terrible memories. You were enslaved there. And Hashem took you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And that place is such a wicked, evil place. You should never want to go back there. Forget it. Go away from there. Never go back. Or the people there were so corrupt and they had such immoral behavior, not only in their enslavement, but their, their culture, their paganism and everything that was evil. You should stay away from them. Don't go back. So you look at Spain. So Spain excelled, and this was a question you should know, back in, in, the, in the days immediately after the expulsion from Spain, to go, when Jews were welcome to come back to live in Spain, should we go back to Spain? Is there a prohibition of going back to Spain for the same reason? These are people, you know, the land itself or the people itself, can we go back? Modern day we say Germany. Can you go back to Germany? Now, you should know that Germany, it was, um, it probably still is, the quickest growing Jewish community in Europe. I think at one stage we might have been the quickest growing Jewish community in the world. But are you allowed to go back to these places? So, I mean, coming from marrying into a, a, a grandchild, grandchild of the Holocaust, you know, the idea of going to Germany was such an anathema that uh, still Jews to this day will not buy German products because, you know, you don't want to benefit the Germans. And going to visit Germany, or I remember March of the Living, you know, should you go back to March of the Living and you pumping money into the incomes of these particular places. Are you allowed to do those sort of things? But here becomes the question, is going to visit those places. So if we look at it in this way, what is the problem? Is the problem, you know, if we're going to use it as a paradigm, visiting Germany. The problem of visiting Germany is the land itself is saturated with Jewish blood. Um, 
both literally and figuratively, as is Poland. And therefore, it, to live in these places or to visit these places were a problem. Or do we say, no, it had to do with the people, that the people there were despicable, disgusting, and what they did was un, you know, unexcusable, and we've got to stay away from them. But can we honestly say that the people of modern Germany are the same people that uh, committed the atrocities 70, 75 years ago? Yeah, are they the same people or are they different people? And, and this is w- on which this, you know, this idea lies. Now, I don't think anyone would practically come and say that it would be a Torah prohibition to go back to Germany, to Spain, or to any of the, these, these countries around the world. But it, it's in that spirit that this sort of conversation happens. That if someone comes and says that you can't go to Germany today, you can't go to any of these places, it's, it's, it's not without reason. And it's beyond just an emotional state. So, so when people say, it, you know, yes, I can understand emotionally why people don't want to go to these places. The question is, is there any halachic basis to it whatsoever? So I'd have to say that not really. I, it, I think it's a, it's a bit of a, a bit of a bigger bow to stretch that much to say that there was an actual halachic prohibition. But the idea that we don't go back to Egypt, surely can be understood in these philosophical terms that it has some ramifications. That when places are, are saturated with Jewish blood, the idea of going back there becomes, you know, questionable. That being said, as much as, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just like sort of wishy-washing over here, um, is it no greater triumph, you know? Does, could there be no greater um, uh, insult to the memory of people like Hitler the fact that a Jewish community is flourishing in Germany. Could there be no greater insult? Now, I wouldn't turn it from a Navarra into a mitzvah saying we should go live in Germany for this thing. But um, it's fair to say that a lot has shifted in the last 75 years. Uh, as no one, I don't think anyone loses sleep when they go to Spain. Or anyone would say would ever have a thought of not going to Egypt because of the Egyptians. So I think time does heal many of these wounds. But I think the sensitivity that is there is something that we do definitely need to uh, to contemplate. But anyway, I just thought it would be an interesting topic. I will now allow you to unmute yourselves. Give me two secs. Um, you can now unmute yourselves. I do see a question. It says, sadly, Eretz Yisrael is also saturated, is it not? Well, Eretz Yisrael, I think, is very, very different. I think... Uh, one of the big differences that I'd say is that the blood that has been spilt in Eretz Yisrael is qualitatively different, even even through the destructions that I think it's been in living in and dying for our land. Definitely in the modern era it was that, but even in the ancient it was it was part of our land. Dying on foreign land I think is very different. I, I do think it is qualitatively different. Um, I'll share an anecdote um, from Rav Soloveitchik, they asked him if the um, if the flag of Israel is in any way holy. And he said there's a unique halacha that uh, ordinarily when a person uh, dies, they have to be buried in what's called tachrichim, in shrouds, plain white uh, cloth. He says the exception to that rule is somebody who's killed because they are Jewish. So if a person is murdered because they are Jewish, they get buried in the clothes that they were murdered in. And the reason is, is that the blood that's spilt on the plone mekadishes the clothes. It sanctifies the clothes. And since this person died, our Kiddush Hashem, they died sanctifying the name of Hashem, the, ho- the clothes are holy and they get buried. 
individual gets buried in those clothes. So Rav Soloveitchik said that the amount of blood that has been spilt for the flag of Israel sanctifies the flag of Israel. And so I think that's more symbolic than literal. But um, that idea is that the, the blood being spilt in Israel, I think, is, is qualitatively different to blood spilt um, in other parts of the world. Okay, open up. Uh, any questions, comments, reactions? I don't know who Dan's is. Maybe Dan's, identify, so I know who he is. Is going back to Egypt not symbolic on going back to bad ways or habits, not only places? Absolutely. And, and I think that is, oh, thank you, Dan. So I think, yeah, going back to bad ways or habits, I think it, it what would be interesting is going to a place where the behavior of the local inhabitants is something very, um, very unacceptable. So for example, um, going to Saddam. So Saddam and Amorah were destroyed because of wicked places. So is there a prohibition to go to Saddam? Saddam doesn't exist. But let's just say we go to the, the closest examples of Saddam. So the best example of Saddam that I've ever been is Vegas. So would we say there's a Torah prohibition to go to Vegas? I think it is a bit harsh. Now there's no question that a person who, who is a, a moral individual and, uh, and is concerned about their uh, spiritual well-being... Vegas is probably not the best place for a Jew to go. That being said, it was a big difference between not a good place to go and a prohibition to go. We talk, when it comes to the Torah, it's, to, uh, it's talking about Egypt, it's talking about a prohibition of going. Whereas going to Vegas, we say like, I'm not sure it's the, the place to go. This is being from someone who not only has been to Vegas, but went to a rabbinic conference in Vegas three years ago. Um, from the Saxes, where does a hundred year harem of not visiting Spain come from and how would it fit into what you've said tonight? So uh, you, it rings a bell. I'm, I'm, I'm not that familiar, but there are definitely, the concept of a harem is that throughout Jewish history, um, there have been prohibitions put on communities to not do certain things or to not associate with certain people. So when you put a person in harem, it means that you can't associate it with it. The Kherim de Rabbanu Gershom, for example, was a, you would put a Kherim on anybody who married more than one wife or divorced her against her will. So that's a Kherim, and those are time limited. And the Kherim about visiting Spain rings a bell. And, but I, someone there? So it rings a bell, but I can't recall the exact specific of it. But it could be that the rabbis of the time around that era said that there's this Kherim on visiting Spain for. Uh, 100 years. I, I, don't, I don't ring a bell if you know the source by all means. Uh, I'm happy to look into it and get back to you on that one. Um, any other questions? Going. Going. Gone. All right, everybody. Thank you very much. Tomorrow night we have Jewish philosophy. Uh, we will be dealing with the occult. Does Judaism believe in black magic and the uh, astrology and the like? Or is it all a bunch of Boba Masters? I hope to see you all then. Have a wonderful evening. Lila Tov.